This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Recode Media. Peter Kafka, that is me speaking to you live on tape from New York City. Here with Bryce Roberts. He's very tall. I think of him as a recovering venture capitalist. What's your actual title now, Bryce? It's, you know, it's somewhere in there. It's, I'm just an investor. Just an investor. You were head of the Indie.VC movement. Is that a thing? I mean, movement's aggressive, but it's moving in the right direction, yes. We normally don't have people who write checks come and talk on oh, this podcast. Normally people who run businesses or opine about businesses. One, I want to branch out a little bit. Two, um, as we are learning, we always knew this, but it's been learning again recently, um, how you fund your company has a lot yeah. to do with the progression or not progression of your company that's been in the news with media companies uh, recently and, and lots of companies. So I want to talk to you about what you do, generally how that might apply to a media company. We'll go from there. We'll talk yeah, about Tavi Evanson at the end. <laughs> your, your well, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I, I think you point out, I think the conversation around how we fund our companies is a timely one. And I think, you know, uh, it's one that people have been either avoid, actively avoiding or actively ignoring for a long time. And I think we're starting to see the ramifications of how we not only fund, but all of the kind of load that comes along that's baked into that uh, structure is really starting to come home to roost. And we're hoping that that's not only a conversation that we can have and be a part of instigating, but that we can start to move that conversation out of the back rooms where it's been for a while and start looking at alternatives to how we think about funding these businesses. So let's, let's give people a little bit of context. Yeah. Um, I said recovering venture capitalists. But yeah. I, when I met you, I thought of you as a VC, you you were an investor in Foursquare. I think that's how I came yeah, to know exactly you. Yeah, that's exactly how we got to know a each other. Fairly traditional, early stage investor that's in right. a traditional VC model. Well, I would push back on that just a little bit and say, what was different then, at least with the f- kind of Foursquare. So Foursquare, you know, Foursquare is coming up on ten years now. So that is, what are we looking at? Two thousand nine. When we got started, we were. Um, what we were trying to do was actually a little bit of what we're trying to capture with NDVC. Seed investing wasn't necessarily considered traditional investing, right? Like we had uh, created funds and fund structures that were designed to function in a universe that VCs couldn't operate in at that time, right? And so we created small funds to fund companies that didn't require much cash up front to be able to build something that was scalable 
And then they could choose to raise money or, you know, if you remember back to 2005, 2006, that's kind of the age of Flickr and Blogger. And right. so there were these series of kind of sub $100 million acquisitions. First little kind of, spots of light post exactly. after the dot-com That's crash. exactly right. And so what you were also seeing, though, was that if you structured your fund in a certain way and if you raised a, you know— um, less capital for your fund versus more, you could unlock venture-level returns at that sub kind of $100 million acquisition level. And so, you know, I think why we look and sound like conventional, traditional VCs now is because Seed, you know, in many respects has kind of been, has essentially co-opted the traditional venture business model. And a Seed round used to be couple hundred thousand dollars, and now seed rounds are millions of dollars, and, or at least have been recently. Yeah, average seed round of 2018 was $2 million, and, you know, it's on a hockey stick. Right. Uh, and, it's, and, and so if you get it traditionally right now, the standard model for, yeah. for a startup company is to go and try to raise money in a seed round that's a couple million dollars, and eventually you plan on raising tens of millions of dollars, and eventually you want to become a unicorn, which means you're valued at a billion dollars or more, and then you sell the company to Microsoft, Google, Facebook, or you take it public. That is the traditional, That's right. the, new, the new new normal, yeah. theoretically. Theoretically. What you're arguing is a, let's, you're advocating for a different model, mm -hmm. which is getting some traction now. Uh, describe what that is. So, you know, I think investors— um, the model is designed, obviously, they're trying to build high-growth startups, um, and they're trying to do that as quickly as possible. And the entrepreneurs who they're funding want to do the same. We want to go from zero to 100 very quickly. Very, very quickly. What we've done is we've created kind of proxies for what that means to be ambitious and to be on that path. And the proxy we've chosen, at least, over the last decade has been funding. And so funding is the signal of, A, your ambition— be the size of your opportunity. When you say we, you mean the venture me, the, capital, like, broad mean tech, the right. startup community. If you're, not, if you're not serious, this is what a serious... This is what a serious right. entrepreneur does, right? And so I think, you know, in the same regards that VCs want to fund billion-dollar monopoly-style businesses, they have themselves a monopoly on the language we use about entrepreneurship, the archetypes that they highlight as the, you know, kind of ideals for entrepreneurship. And as a result, we've kind of looked at anything that diverges from that narrative as less ambitious, less worthy. And I think, you know, part of what you're seeing in that consolidation around seed investing is that, you know, we now think that the only thing we should be funding is something that a priori, you know, to product, to revenue, to any of that stuff is the belief that it can become billion-dollar businesses. And so it's really, you know, they own the language around that. And so what we were trying to do with NDVC is to say at the earliest stages— that we think there's value in shifting your focus to that sequential fundraise of seed series A, series B, you know, oftentimes, especially in the early stages, you know, the goal of a round of funding is to set yourself up, you know, to be in a position to raise that next round. Right. And oftentimes that next round still isn't predicated on actual fundamentals. It's predicated on your ability to keep telling a bigger and bigger story about what it is you're trying to build. Right. You want to get progressively bigger, tell a bigger story, and raise more money. That's right. And then eventually it's, it ends when you succeed wildly. Yes. So the radical move that we've made with NDVC is we've said uh, that model works for a few. And I think if you look at the numbers, you know, the number of companies that actually achieve billion-plus-dollar valuations um, on paper and liquidity tends to be 
uh, over the last few decades. It tends to be in the kind of 10 to 20 companies a year kind of achieve that. Um, and so what about all those other companies? You know, you're talking about not just all companies that get started, but 99% of the companies who actually raise venture capital don't achieve that, right? And so, you know, the, but can still be successful businesses. Not, but they, but they can't be considered a successful business when the only definition of success is a billion dollar. Right. This in is that the, sense. The, 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 so right. So the, yes. the derisive term that uh, people in the VC world, and that world, describe it. basically anything that's not a billion dollar company is is a lifestyle business. That's right. And it's so it's meant to be an insult. Yeah, it's meant to be an insult. And I think what we, so one of the problems we were interested in, at least experimenting with with, with NDVC, was to say, okay. Um, what if we shifted our focus at the earliest stage from the next round of funding and making sure you have the right stories, the right people around the table to kind of hack that next round algorithm in the minds of venture investors and how they make decisions to revenues and profits? If you took all that energy, if you took all of that expense, if you took all of that um, focus and shifted it slightly. To running a business where you sell something and then make money from that right. sale. That's right. As thing. radical as that sounds, it, in current kind of dogma of startup, you know, the startup community, that is a death sentence. If you walked into a, you know, a venture fund and said that was your goal, they would have zero interest. Because in I, I only want something that's going to go 10x. I only want something that's going to return my fund. I need to, I need to, I need well, to hope even, this is going to be a billion-dollar exit. If it's a 3 to 5x, which would be a great return for most people, that's actually not a win for me. But interestingly, there's also the kind of nuance of the venture business model, especially the early stage, where the incentives for them are actually to make sure you get more funding too because – with each of those subsequent rounds, ideally, they're marking their investment up. So they can start ratcheting up what's called an internal rate of return or an IRR. And with that, they're able to, you know, look like geniuses and ideally go raise a next run, round on, or a next fund on the back of that. So like you've said, there's always been – venture capital has always been sort of a niche way of, yep. of, of funding a company. In the last 10 years or so, it's become pretty commonplace for people to have some idea of what that is. But most companies are not raising money through VC. I assume most of them are are out there getting loans from banks. I mean, what what has been the other alternative to getting VC up until now? I mean, I think you're right. I mean, the reality is most, and, you know, VCs will be the first to say it, right? And I would be too. Venture capital is the wrong product for most companies. But, you know, less than 1% of all companies that get started raise venture capital, right? And so by design, it's designed to be a niche. And I think our point is like, even within that niche, even within the niche of people who raise venture capital, it's still working for less than 1%. And so you and I are consumers of products. If we were starting a business to sell to consumers and it worked for less than 1% of the people who purchased it, you would have a real problem on your hands. In parlance of venture, you would have not very good product market yeah. fit. <laughs> and yet, because when venture works, it works so spectacularly well that we've now anchored on a handful of companies and every entrepreneur believes and every investor believes that that's what they have to build and that the path they follow to do that is the one they have to follow. And so what we are saying is, yes, that product works for a very small number of companies. If you don't fit that, even within the venture-funded startup tech landscape, you know, we still only have one product to sell you. What, we're, what, you know, what we stepped out and said four years ago is let's 
create a space where we can talk about and think about other playbooks than this blitz scaling model. So you have you have a playbook. What, so what is the basic offer that you're making? You're suggesting instead. So yeah, you know, what we are trying to do is create a community of entrepreneurs who are focused on profits and revenue early on. We're trying to curate other entrepreneurs and stories that we can help cycle through the mainstream tech press around highlighting folks who've built businesses that. VCs would love to have participated in or who did participate later on in their life cycle, but that wouldn't exist likely if they'd raised a million or $2 million seed round. So, for instance, I live in Salt Lake City, Utah. Wait, Bryce, I'm going to just because we're, we're 14 minutes into it. I oh just want to make sure, I just want to make sure people understand <laughs> what, it is, what it is. Oh, we're going to roll for a while, but I just want to understand. Want people to understand what it is that yeah. you're offering. Yeah, yeah. I, I run an interesting company. I'm going to sell something and make yeah. a profit on it. What can you, Bryce, slash NDVC, so, offer, offer So, me? So what NDVC does is we are a fund. We are investors. Technically, there's a part of our URL that says VC in it, so let's go with the uh-huh. idea that we're VCs. But we invest money, so we write checks between 100000 and a million dollars into startups that are post-revenue. And... Rather than fund you with the intent that you are, we're going to help you raise your next round, we work closely with you to get to profitability and sustainability. And we plug you into community of entrepreneurs, both our portfolio in terms of our cohorts of companies um, that are currently doing this, and a broader network of entrepreneurs who are, you know, at much bigger scale that you can learn from. And so what we found is, you know, Probably the advice your parents gave you growing up, like you become who you hang around. You lie down with the dogs, you get fleas. Um, we, we're trying to create a space where but they can be around others who think and build like this. I'm just going to force you into this That's real, okay. real no, briefly. So you're going to write me a check, yeah. 100000 to a $1 million. Yeah. You're not doing it as a gift. I don't know if I'm doing it to you. You're, probably not. <laughs> Uh, it's the, you run a business, so you want that money back and you want to make a of return. Course. So how does yeah. that work? So if, if the idea is we're not trying to make a 10x business here, we're trying to make a real business that's going to grow at a slower rate, but it's a real business. How do you get your money out? How does that work? See, I think that's the misconception. Like, I think there's two pieces of what you said that I think are uh, misunderstood. One of those is we're not looking for a 10x return. We believe that we can see 10x returns. Okay, We're seeing fine. some of our companies that are growing into significant. But you're scale. not turning away companies that that don't have that hockey stick. That's right. So, but okay, next thing. But I think the other thing that you said that I think is misunderstood is that I think people have this idea that the venture model is built on the back of 10x returns, but it's not. It's actually built on the back of 1,000x returns. So, you know, if you listen to Bill Gurley, he will say venture is not in the home run business. We're in the grand slam business. And if you look at the percentage of grand slams that happen in any given baseball season, yeah. it's actually the eerily the same number of unicorn companies that are made in a given year. And so I think those are the two pieces that I would argue is, one, I think people are buying into a venture model that they think has a return profile that it actually doesn't. And from our standpoint, we think we can get there, but we think that that early um, focus on understanding the levers of your business will end up yielding similarly outsized returns. I know you're not evading my question because it's a basic question. How do you get your money back? <laughs> Through returns. I mean, yeah. the same way we do. A company sells. We have ownership in that company. We get our percentage of that sale. But you're not waiting for that, right? Isn't there a way for you to get a percentage there of is. profits so, or revenue? Know, so th- there's, so there's, we created a new investment instrument that functions similarly to a, a 
standard convertible note, which in you know venture world is it's like a you know it's an investment instrument that anticipates either a future round of funding that we would convert into and then have an ownership stake in that business. Or if you sell the business, we convert in and have a percentage of that sale go through to us, right? What's unique to what we do is we have a track that if an entrepreneur decides they never want to raise money anymore and they want to grow their business on cash flow and they want to get rich off of profits, then we have the option of allowing them to repurchase our ownership stake uh, through sharing of a, through a revenue share. And so after they've paid us out, you know, after they've repurchased our shares, the return on that investment for us or the return on those, we cap at a 3x. So you lend me $100,000, eventually I pay you that back, and then your expectation is you're going to get 3x above that as a share of my revenue for some period, and then it's going to stop once I've got to 3x. For some companies, right? Yeah. And you know, I think in that case, we allow them to repurchase up to 90%, so we still maintain 1%. You know, we have a very technical happens. term that's yes. called schmuck insurance, right? And so we have a, you know, we have a little Maybe bit of schmuck insurance. We decided insurance. to sell this for a billion dollars after all. Of course, yeah. right. But, you know, in the meantime, if they end up going that more traditional route, if they decide to raise a round of financing, our return isn't capped at 3x. We convert in just like any other convertible note. We got it. We got there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I got it. I just want to make sure you explained it clearly. I mean, one of the reasons you're talking to me, in addition to the goodness of your heart, <laughs> is you're out here promoting. You want people to, there's a, pro, a program you're doing. That's right. We merge. People can sign up. Yeah, yeah. So we, we announced an EVC uh, four years ago. And over those four years, we've done a couple different iterations. And so with this year, starting January 1, we announced something we called V3, which was kind of our third iteration, new set of terms, a cohort of companies who are trying to kind of batch our investments together. Applications are due March 1st. Go to um, indie.vc. There's yeah. a burning unicorn. It's there should be. pretty scary yeah, there. It's terrifying. Okay, so... Uh, we're going to take a quick break. You may go to your browser and look up NDVC, but make sure to listen to this message regardless. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Back here with Bryce Roberts from Indy.vc. Um, let me do the devil's advocate portion of the, uh, of the podcast. You do that one. Um, hey, you know what? VC is great. It inspires people to grow fast. Fast growth is a good thing. Um, there's nothing wrong with running a mom-and-pop business, but we do want people to be ambitious. And by the way, even when people don't hit grand slams, they still can have very successful businesses. Um, even if you only have a 2x exit or a 3x exit, that's good for the entrepreneur, can often be good for the entrepreneur. And if that's not good for the VC, well, that's the VC's problem. They, everyone's a grown-up. Theoretically, everyone has their eyes open. What's wrong with playing that game? This is the stuff. Like you're, you're stepping right into my briar patch, oh, which man. is like you bought into the same narrative that everybody else has, which is that there's only one way to grow fast. Uh -huh. So our NDVC companies are on average are growing 100% in the first year and 300% after the second year of working with us. 
I wouldn't say that's terribly slow growth. It's not 10xing every year, but it's healthy growth. And I think we're seeing companies, we'll probably get into some of them, but you know, we're seeing companies that started working with us doing tens of thousands a month in revenue, and they're now doing millions a month in revenue. And so you know, I think that was part of the original experiment was to push back on that kind of conventional wisdom of startups that the only way to grow fast and the only way to be, you know, to reflect your ambition is to jump into this, you know, funding cycle that somehow signals that you are on a path that only a world changer can be on. And what we're trying to say is, there's other ways to do it. But again, the, there's, but, there's a, but there's a way where you, you jump in there, but there's ways for you to jump out. I mean, especially if you're savvy about how much money you take on. Sure, yeah. It gives you optionality, yep. as people in your old business and bankers say. We say it. Like, what we say is we're hard coding that optionality. The hard part is today, you think you have it, but you don't know what you so signed like the, up for. The, when gim, you raise the, gimlet, the Gimlet guys yeah. just sold their company for right. $230 million. Awesome. It'll, eventually, that price will be official, but that's that's the price. Um, Who broke that story, by the way? I broke that story, and I'm talking to someone, and, and there's a lot of, like, in the podcasting world, people don't spend a lot of time thinking about money. They think, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And I've been saying to them sort of off mic, you know, the VCs won't say this, but some of them aren't going to be super psyched about that because that's, I think, if you invested in the last round, you got a three and a half times return. You can argue that over 19 months, that's good, whatever, but it's still not a huge number, right? If if the VCs were truly excited about it, Gimlet maybe wouldn't have sold. But that's still a good outcome for the Gimlet guys. It's, Crazy it's, outcome. It's in, and so if you're a VC, you might be, and in, in, if you were an investor in that, you might be disappointed that you didn't get 10x or 1,000x. But no harm, no foul, right? Everyone's happy. It seems like a good outcome. And I would argue that they were in a position at each step of the way to optimize for that kind of outcome, right? One thing that they didn't do that was probably not so obvious to people who weren't paying attention was they didn't bring in a traditional VC on their last round of funding. So who they brought in were strategics, and they brought in more of a group that's like a private equity partner, right? And so... You're saying it's I, no accident that he didn't have a traditional VC. In this it. is exactly what I'm saying, which is his early-stage investors, the beta works, the lower case, like... They're, and, you know, they're designed, their funds are designed to see a return sub, you know, 300, 250. And that returns a, maybe all of their fund, but likely a material portion of their fund. By going with a private equity investor versus like, you know, a traditional venture investor, those private equity investors are thrilled to have a two or three X, right? And so... You know, this is actually, you know, Alex and I know each other. This is something we talked a lot about when he was Alex trying. Alex Blumberg. Yeah, Alex Blumberg. And I talked a lot about when he was looking at his funding options because, you know, he was someone who was at least far enough up the learning curve to know what going with, you know, a Sand Hill Road firm or nowadays a South Park firm, you know, what that meant to his cap table and what it meant to his optionality. Yeah. And so... Yes, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a billion-dollar outcome, but I'll tell you what, because of the way they structured it, all of those investors are likely happy, and they were able to have a life-changing outcome that had they gone the conventional route, they probably would have had to fight tooth and nail to make happy. Because I have written stories about, or I know, I, I knew, I know entrepreneurs who sold their company, they've made a bunch of money, they made a life-changing amount of money, and the VCs who backed them complain about it. Loudly enough that I hear about it. Um, and I think, boy, that's... That's something screwed up there. Right. Um, I'm, I'm making your case for you. Um, Thank you. This is here, turning here's into the, an infomercial. Here's, the, here's the, media, the, the media critique we've heard the last few yep. months. 
uh, Vice, BuzzFeed, this company have all had layoffs of some sort. We're all VC backed to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. You, you could argue that maybe less VC than more strategic, whatever. Sure. And the popular narrative is those greedy VCs demand to get their money back or they want bigger returns and thus they've had to have cuts. And I should actually get around to writing this, but that's not true, right? Because they definitely wanted big returns, but they're not trying to get BuzzFeed to cut their budget by X amount because they want to squeeze out more. What's happening is BuzzFeed and Vice and probably Vox Media aren't able to raise any more money, certainly not at valuations they'd like to see. And so they've got to actually run a company. But it's not because the greedy VCs are making them do it. What probably has happened, realistically, is the people who were funding them have no longer any interest in funding them, which is a nuanced thing, but it's it's different. Again, that seems not terrible. I think the discussion to have is, should they ever have taken that hypergrowth and, and all that investment to begin with? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great question. I, I hope that more people are— Maybe I'll have Jim Bankoff on. We'll talk about it. I think that'd be a really interesting one to riff on because I think too few people are dissecting it because they're, you know, like you can, you can appreciate there's two sides to each of that, right? Like there's the model of the investor that says— you know, we want to invest, we want to invest a lot, and we want to invest only in the biggest and baddest companies, right? But then you also have the entrepreneur who says, well, I only want to build the biggest and baddest company. And if we're in this together, we're aligned on building the biggest and baddest company, then like, let's start sprinting right now, right? And so, you know, when the money's easy, it's easy to sprint. You know, when it's hard to raise, which, you know, we can get into that a little bit too, of how the investment climate is shifting, that you know, they have to figure out how to real, run a real business. And, and, but in the interim, you know, they just have to get as big as they can, as fast as they can. And that's true in media, but I think it's also true across all of our Yeah, I mean, the, the anomaly right was now. that media ever attracted a lot of funding because for a long time, traditional investors wanted nothing to do with I mean, it because you couldn't tell a story about this thing growing 10x. It was anomalous. You did People tied it to Facebook, and all of a sudden BuzzFeed was a tech company, and, and Vox Media was a tech company, and that was, I think, the way you, you justified getting a VC right. to invest in you. But traditionally, they wouldn't invest in media at all. And I think that's hard, right? Because I do think there, because we don't have any other models to fund high-growth startups— what ends up happening is everybody kind of shoehorns themselves into what it is VCs think they're looking for, right? So you get a media company that's a great content business, but you know what you hear? And it's, it's likely the podcasting companies are hearing this now because I'm almost certain all of these BuzzFeed and Voxes heard it too, which was, we don't do content companies. They're not scalable, yeah. right? So what do you do? Rather than say, okay, well, we're not a fit for venture. Well, if we're not a fit for venture, who are we a fit for, right? And what does that signal if we can't raise it? Instead, you start to kind of contort yourself, and you start to say, "Well, maybe we're a maybe we're a maybe we're a content management company, and maybe we build this really clever CMS that allows us to spin up lots of verticals, and maybe there's ways that we can license that." And so, you know, you end up kind of doing unnatural things. And I think ultimately, like you know, it's the lesson that media companies have learned over and over again: is there's kind of a natural state that there's you know investor appetite to a point. Um, and I think what shifted recently was that the you know the appetite for acquisitions or the likely acquirers, right? Yeah. They've all been buying each other, and they don't have interest or cash to go buy more to add to those platforms. Yeah, that story, like the the guys NBC put two hundred into into Vox where I work, 
Hello? Uh, $400 million into BuzzFeed. They bought $500 million worth of Snapchat. And at the time, they were really proud of this. They put out a press release announcing how much money they'd invested in digital. And now they sort of pretend that that didn't happen. Or they say what they really say is, internally, that was a worthwhile experiment, and now we've moved on. Yeah. We're no longer interested in that kind of business. And I think the hard part in all of that is everybody wants to point a finger, as you said. Like, everybody wants to say evil VCs. Everybody wants to say, you know, crazy entrepreneur, got really greedy. You know, I think you can only look at it in the context of the market that they were in, right? Like, does Jonah Peretti at BuzzFeed really believe that he was going to be bigger than the New York Times? I have no doubt in my mind he believed that. And so wanted to surround himself with partners who believe the same thing. I think the difference comes in the fact that there still remains laws of gravity, right? There's still physics that apply to business and the world. And sometimes you're able to defy those. But when you stop defying those, you have to come back to reality. And when I read his post about the layoffs they did a couple of weeks ago, I was really heartened to see like he, when the funny math wears off and when the easy money's gone, people have to build real businesses. The hard part now that he has that we are trying to solve for with the work we're doing is it's much easier to do that when you've already built up the institutional muscle memory around that. It's much easier to scale from that than it is to retract from hyperscale into a real business and a real profitable business. Do you have people coming to you who said, I, I, I have this great idea for a company. I thought the VCs would want it. They don't. Can you help me out? But they're in the paper napkin idea stage. <laughs> we have, yeah. No, we definitely and, do. And you say think, go away or? I, you know, I think we've made a conscious decision to work with companies who are post-revenue. I think so you, you know, need we, to have an operating company that is actually generating money. Yeah, we, but we don't need them to be generating profits, and we don't have a minimum target. What we do want to see is that we aren't taking venture risk in the fact that there's no product, there's no revenue. Uh, which is what venture is designed to support, and getting a, a debt return on that, right? So if there's an outcome where we only get 3x and we've taken venture risk, then that, you know, that equation just doesn't work. So, but if someone comes in, you know, you and I have talked about, uh, you know, one of our media companies that we work with uh, that's called The Shade Room. So Angie. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Angie, you've had her on stage at your conferences. You know, Angie's a, you know, a, a, an entrepreneur who, you know, we met through, you know, Jenna Wortham wrote a piece about her in the New York Times second years Jenna years Wortham ago. reference in yeah. a month on this podcast. And, you know, I think, um, you know, Jenna always has the pulse of interesting things. And so when she was writing about tech, you know, I think folks who paid attention benefited from that. And so she introduced me to Angie. We started working with Angie when she was doing less than 10K a month in revenue. And this last is an Instagram-based sort of yeah, gossip it's a, it's, social it's site. It's the media company that we hear from people who are in the Voxes. Like, it's the media company they all wish they would have built because now they're locked into a given platform, right? So she built this, you know, what you know, I think our friend Andy Weissman would call a no-stack startup, right? Like, she doesn't build the technology, but she leverages all of the different platforms to build her audience and monetize her audience on. And so, you know, she has, well, you know, what is it? She's probably pushing 15 million Instagram followers. You know, her Instagram uh, account has more than BuzzFeed, Vice. And, you know, basically every media company on uh, Instagram, she has more followers than all of them combined, right? And so, incredible reach. But, you know, she was a media company. She didn't even, 
you know, I mean, candidly, she didn't even know what venture capital was when we started talking to her. She didn't, uh, she'd never heard of like White Combinator or any of this like startup ecosystem stuff. She was doing less than 10K. She had less than 500,000 followers. And now this last year she did, um, you know, millions in revenue and millions in profit. It does not have VC back. Does not have VC back. What would her life look like if, if she had taken VC money, do you think? You know, that is a story that's still being written. She turned down two term sheets this last year from, you know, really strong, reputable funds. Uh, she's, we don't know. We might yet see what that looks Good. like. I mean, I do think that given my experience with venture, what that likely would have meant is that she would have built out, you know, a big newsroom. She would have built out, she would have started to look and act like a mainstream media company when, you know, when when the magic in what she's doing is that it makes a lot of people uncomfortable and she's doing things that people who haven't locked into some predefined scaled model have to do, you know, to, to be appealing to the outside world. Angie is a woman. She is. She's African-American, woman right. of color. Um, is it an accident that your model appeals to her? Is there something about what you're doing that is more appealing to people who don't look like Mark Zuckerberg, who didn't put a year in at Harvard or Stanford? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting aspects of what we've been trying to do that may get lost on people in the mainstream tech world, right? So stepping back and looking at you know the numbers of venture capital and where the dollars are getting allocated and, you know, we often joke that like seed in, you know unicorns ate seed investing because what a unicorn's reward is pattern matching and so you know when you look for something that looks like it can be a billion dollars no one gets fired for funding a kid who dropped out of Harvard who who dropped out of Stanford and so what you get is over the last few years it's become more and more uh, understood that the archetypes of investing are 98% of venture dollars go to men. 80% of venture dollars go to three states. Less than 1% of venture dollars go to people of color, right? And so here's a woman. So, you know, she's in the like, you know. <laughs> the tiniest the, Venn diagram. The tiniest of Venn diagrams. So how does that work for your portfolio? What does your portfolio look like roughly? Yeah, well, I mean, we're 50-50. So we're half male founder, half female founder. So right away you're anomalous. We're anomalous. We have 20% of our founders are black founders. And I think what's been interesting is we've been able to give people who wouldn't have had traditionally venture support, where we've been able to give them investment and a network that they might not have been able to plug into otherwise. And what we're seeing, particularly in the case of Angie, was going from, you know, barely hanging on to throwing off cash. And, um, you know, I don't think we can take much credit for that, but she would probably give us more credit than we yeah. deserve around what her involvement with us have meant has meant to her business. And so, you know, I think when I look at the why we might appeal, it's that the best position someone who doesn't raise or hasn't historically raised venture capital in the past, women, people of color, underrepresented people, the most appealing you can be to investors is being in a position to say no. And we're seeing that play like out. Most things in life, right? <laughs> of course. Yeah. But, you know, we're seeing that play out every single day in our portfolio with, you know, whether they're underrepresented or whether they're mainstream entrepreneurs who want, you know, who maybe have raised venture before but didn't want to go back down that track again right up front, um, is that the more we can put them in a position to say no, the more enthusiasm there are from investors to get them to say yes. Are there other media companies you've invested in? Obviously, you do a, a range of stuff. Um, 
I don't think so. Okay. I don't the Shade Room is your anomalous. Anomalous media company. I mean, we're we're in the middle of our application process right now, so I hope we'll see more of them because I do think, you know, I think there are, um, if you look at the the winds of change that are happening in the media company, you're probably paying attention to Ben Thompson. You're paying attention to independent writers kind of spinning up their there's own. There's that. There's all the subscription services. All the subscription services. Yeah, now, both. most of those don't look what you'd histor- look like what you'd historically consider venture scale. But put on the right path and given the right set of resources, there might be some of those that end up looking more like platforms over time as they evolve. And, you know, we think that's an interesting space to be. I mean, I think in general, you know, you're watching it play out in media, but I've been watching it play out across all kinds of different investment themes over the last 15 years, and that is VCs and venture gets really excited about a category, and so everybody goes deep and everybody needs a media company. And then they get really, really cold on it. I was it. at a VC conference last week. I'll give Mark Suster a shout-out, Upfront Ventures. I'm um, and I talked to VC there. and was confidently explaining to me that, that they wouldn't do media unless it's attached to a piece of hardware because now everyone wants to do Peloton. Yes. And leaving aside the, the merits of Peloton, I think it's just hilarious that that's now the new model is oh, yeah, sell an expensive piece of hardware and then get someone to pay 30 bucks because maybe it'll work for Peloton, but there's not going to be 100 of them or 10 of them. No, or, or interested in a media company, but only if it has its own physical products that it's selling and it's part, you know, it's like a merchandising, it's basically a catalog of some sort yeah. for a lifestyle that they want to. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, the winds of change are always shifting, right? And so if you were raising money for VR two years ago, it might have been easy. It's much, much harder to get anybody to even take a meeting these days. And so I think one of the things that that informs around how we invest is, you know, if you're in a category that's directionally correct, but it's out of favor, like that's a pretty interesting place to be. If we can help put you on a path to not needing investors, when sentiment for your category starts to heat up again, you'll be in a position to pick and choose who you want to work with or whether you want to work with anybody. We'll take one more quick break. I'm going to put on my virtual reality goggles. You Let's guys are going to listen to a message. Be right back. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in your Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. I'm back here with Bryce Roberts. I'm wearing Mac Weldon products oh as I speak. They did not pay me to say this, well, although they might be advertising, so who knows. Um, speaking of, of, of other VCs, yep. you mentioned this off-air that someone's come up to you in your face and said, what are you doing here? Yeah. That's half bullshit, right? Like, VCs aren't truly threatened by you. You're, you're, you're out there in Utah. You're writing small checks. What am I doing? They're, they're, they're I'm ignoring you. Yeah. No, I know. I, look, I, I think that... You know, my quote in the New York Times piece, one of the, one of, uh, the yeah, quotes. Yeah, there's a big New York Times piece yeah, about you. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, Aaron Griffith wrote a piece about kind of this movement um, or at least this um, 
subculture of entrepreneurs and investors who are actively looking to build paths away from traditional venture. And, you know, I had a quote in there that said, I was surprised at how thin-skinned my peers in venture would be when someone starts to poke at the model a little bit. Partly because these are the conversations we have in coffee shops and in conference rooms all the time. Um, because everybody's questioning why this isn't working at the scale that it should be working. And they're questioning whether or not this is the right model to be funding every company that comes through the door. But I think the other part of that is that you mentioned it. I actually have, you know, there are people who don't reply to my emails anymore. And there are people who've, you know, confronted me at different events who don't like what it is that I've been saying. Because to be clear, right, you have a, you have a nice resonant voice but and, and you're tall, but you're not, you're not, out there with a pitchfork threatening to burn down the, no, the I mean, I think, and, But I think that's, that's the thing that seems to be lost on people, right? Like everyone wants to say you're either bootstrapping and starving or else you're going the venture route and you're foie gras yeah. yourself into like, you know, just stuffing yourself full of cash. And, you know, what we're trying to say is that there are grades in between there, that there, are, there ought to be lots of different ways to be thinking about And your about suggestion this. is that for these hyper-confident masters of the universe— who are VCs, to explain to everyone how they're going to get to, to 10x and escape velocity. Yeah. The, the, your presence alone, your, even your internet presence is enough to unnerve them and upset them. I think that's, they, they, they don't seem to take kindly to people suggesting that they shouldn't take their money right now. I think that's the, that's the tweak that I'd make to Aaron's title of her New York Times piece. She said, you know, telling VCs to, you know, there's a whole wave of entrepreneurs who are telling VCs to get lost. And I think my, you know, appendage to that would be for now. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so I think there's a lot of folks who interpret anything that, departs from the accepted narrative as a threat or critique to what it is venture does. And my hope would be that as they would listen to us and they'd hear what we're actually saying, that we aren't critiquing venture, that we're saying venture works for some companies. It works really well for some of those companies. And there's a reason it does. But there's a lot of people who it doesn't work really well yeah. for. And there's a lot of incentives that it's people It's always don't. funny when hyper-confident people turn out to be less confident. Yes. Um, it, it's rare. At them, tiny. <laughs> it happens more often than you think. Right. Uh, last question. Tavi yeah. Gevinson. Oh, my gosh. How did, I, how did that happen? Rookie founder. Wrote yes. a, wrote a, uh, just basically closed up shop, wrote a long essay about it. References a VC named Bryce. Oh, my gosh. Which I'm pretty sure is you. You're pretty sure it is you. I connected the two of you, so that's that's why we're reasonably confident, I think. Yeah. So Tavi wrote a long thing about why uh, she couldn't continue running the business. At some point prior to this, a couple of years ago, I think, yeah. she said, I'm looking for maybe investors and what yeah. they look like. And I thought, oh, Bryce's model right. might work for you. So walk me through that discussion you had with her and why you ended up not investing in her. Or why um, she ended up not taking your money. I remember the conversation really well. And I remember feeling like, you know, there's a point in a business where it's hard to pull out of what feels like a tailspin. And, you know, especially for first-time entrepreneurs, it's hard to recognize when you're in that. With Tavi, you know, what I heard and felt was, this was a woman who cared deeply about this product that she'd built. But in many respects, she was kind of trapped by a product she built when she was 16 years old. 
And she was now— Literally 16. Literally 16. And so I think there was a part of her that felt this longing to maintain this business and people that she cared deeply about. But there was also a sense of, like, permission to become something that she hadn't necessarily experienced yet. And Because she was all, what, 23 when you talked to her? Something like that. But, you know, I mean, in that's seven years for someone to be heads down on a business. And so— you know, I became in her story, I think. I mean, I don't know how many VCs there are named Bryce or what, but, you know, I became the, you know, the masthead for, you know, a VC who's going to ask kind of hard questions that maybe she was having a hard time answering. Yeah. And, you know, I think when you work with an investor, if those questions make you uncomfortable, then I think more entrepreneurs should be asking themselves not whether— they are a fit for venture capital, which is clearly the question she was coming to me to ask, but more so, is venture capital right for me? And I think the default today is, I need to be asking myself if I'm a fit for venture, and then I have to make myself look like I'm a fit for venture, instead of really being thoughtful about, like, is venture right for me? Because it doesn't feel right She clearly wasn't going to be someone who wanted to do venture. I think the fundamental question for her, and I think that, that it's a really candid post. I mean, she's essentially saying, she didn't want to run this business that is 100% attached to her and her persona and her name, and she wanted it to be in good hands, but she didn't want to run it full-time. Yep. And I think any investor, whether it's you or a VC or a bank, would say, if the person who's Why are we built around it yeah, doesn't want to do it, then we <laughs> right. need to figure— And also that limits what she can do with the sale, and I think that's why it shut down. And I remember when that post came out, it got lumped in with— whatever round of media layoffs we were having. But that's that's a different thing. That's a company attached to a person who doesn't want to do that company anymore. And, and you can't f- solve that with a funding model. That's right. You can't solve that with a funding model. But what I appreciate about what she did and what I feel like we're missing out on in this kind of rush to fit into the traditional venture model is I feel like we're missing out on companies and company cultures that could be really special that could be even experimental and go on to be massive. But because as an entrepreneur, now we're conditioning them to think, well, I'm not even going to start if it's not clearly a billion-dollar idea. I think we're missing out on really special kinds of companies, really special entrepreneurs who look at that model and say, that's not me, but if it's not me, I got nowhere to go, right? And a lot of what makes these, especially these bootstrap companies that I've gotten to know over the years, almost to the one, the companies that are most interesting and scale the largest, I will universally tell them, like, everything you've done to make your business work and to stand apart and to make it special are things that if I were your board member, I would have had to, like, drop the hammer on. (laughs) You can't do those things because that doesn't fit what the next set of investors is going to look for. And I think we miss out on some really special world-changing companies because everybody's rushing so quickly to look and be like what investors are looking for. Bryce, this is great. Thanks. I should either have more investors come on, because hmm. it turns out this is a really good conversation, or just have you come back. We'll let the audience decide. We'll figure that out. Uh, thanks for your time again. Um, people know how to Google you. They can go to indie.vc. They can. They've got till March to apply, but I'm sure you can figure out something if they don't apply yeah, by March. Of course. Um, thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to our advertisers for advertising. Thanks to Golda and Jelani and Joel. Did I miss anyone? And Eric. Hey, Eric. Um, and thanks to you guys for listening. You're the best. We'll see you next week.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.